So it's a fairly dense, I mean, we're reading a lot. 26 verses is a lot, um, a, a, a lot to read and it is fairly dense. And so let me just say this, that if, uh, if this is the only time you're hearing Galatians 5, um, and, and, and especially if your attendance is, you know, kind of hit or miss, then like you're not gonna get a ton out of uh, this section of Galatians 5. In fact, we're not even gonna, we're, we're taking a break next week. Um, next week, Pastor Jason Hampton from the church plant that we are helping to plant in Indianapolis will be here. And so Jason and his wife, Mary, and their kids will be here with us. And so Jason's preaching next week. We'll take a week off. And so I say that to encourage you to, to get into God's word and to open it up and to spend time with Galatians, the fifth chapter, that at the end of this, right before Christmas, that I, I want us to have some understanding. And every time it's read, I think like, gosh, I'm not even gonna get time to say this and this and this and this and this and this. Oh. And so like, uh, spend time with it. The other thing I would say is we're in our community groups and this is actually a DNA week. This is not a PCG week, but in our community groups that study the sermon focal text, uh, in those you're studying um, Galatians chapter five. And so I've written a discussion guide. And so if you're here this morning, and you would like one of those discussion guides, they are actually on the, 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 the music stands are in the front and the back. And I don't know, there's 15 or so of them there and you can grab one of those and you can even use it um, as you think about the passage of scripture this week. Let's go all the way at the top, okay? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, Paul says, and do not uh, submit again to a yoke of slavery. I, I said this last week, but we'll go back here. Uh, I think for most of us, when we think about Christianity, that the idea of Christianity and freedom, that they seem like they would be at odds with one another. And when Paul says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, that most of us, when we think about Christianity, freedom doesn't enter in our minds, but I, I, actually for most of us, it would be the opposite. What probably enters into your mind is, well, now there's a new set of laws and rules and restrictions upon my life. That Christianity doesn't feel like it's snapping the chains, but what it feels like it's uh, shackling me with uh, new chains. And if you've been around Christianity or been around the church, like you understand that, well, I'm not free to do whatever I wanna do. And, and that's what we wanna talk about this morning. That Paul opens up the fifth chapter in a whole book of Galatians, speaking about freedom in a chapter that is about freedom, that the whole summation is found in this, that is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is through our belief in Jesus that you and I are set free. We are declared free and Jesus has liberated us and it's free lives that we get to live. I said this this week, the, the title of the whole sermon series is set free to live free. But it is possible to believe in Jesus and to be declared free. It is possible to be set free and never to live free. It is possible to be completely declared free by the powerful, atoning, finished work of Jesus and Jesus to say, you are free, free indeed. Whom the son sets free is free indeed. And I have freed you, him to say that over you, him to demonstrate that freedom in you and yet you to never live free. And that's what's happening. The, the context of what's happening here in this chapter, it matters because that's what's happening in the region of Galatia that Paul has, uh, has gone and, and Acts covers this, that Paul has gone into the region of Galatia and he's gone into different cities and he's preached the gospel there. 
These people were formerly idolaters. They were formerly pagans. They didn't know about the God of the Bible. They didn't know about Jesus, his son that he sent. And Paul is gone and he's preached the gospel in city after city after city. And God has done a miraculous work that he's saved some in the city and they've become believers in Jesus and churches have been planted in these regions. And now, what? what, what oh, I'm sorry, all that they've ever known has been the gospel. They didn't know about the law. They didn't know about the Old Testament. They didn't know about all of that, that that precedes the work of Christ. And all they knew was the gospel that Paul preached to them. And the gospel message was this. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will be saved. And as a result of your salvation, as a result of your belief in Christ, then you will obey God and you will live a good life. That's the gospel. And that's what he's preached to them. And that's what they've done. They've, they've believed and they've been saved and they've been changed and they've made, been made new. And as a result of that, they're obeying God and they're li- trying to live a good life, a right life before him. And folks have come in and they've said that, well, that sounds so simple. It sounds so simple. Like surely there's gotta be more to do than just to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then you can be saved. Surely there's something you must do And so they became a target for for, for this religious group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers, this group of false teachers, they've shown up into town after town and they've said, no, Paul got it wrong. That what much you must do is you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you must live a good life and obey God. And as a result, then you will be saved. And that's the message that they've been preaching, that belief is not enough, that you have to obey the law of God, the commands of God, and then you will be saved, and then you will receive, and then God will receive you, and he will bless you, and he will accept you. And as I said last week, Paul says, that is not freedom, but that is slavery. And Paul is mad. Now, I got to give props to Miss Cook. You did a little bit better. Last week we had Sarah Goodrich read the text and I said, Sarah's just too sweet, you know? And so this week we found a school teacher to read the text. School teacher turned counselor to read the text, but she still didn't quite drop the hammer enough yet because in the text, the tone of the text is Paul's angry. He's angry at these false teachers that are coming in and stirring up controversy. And what he's saying here is you're trying to put another yoke. In fact, look at verse number six. We made our way pretty much through the first five verses last week. We're gonna take a bigger chunk this week, but we'll start in verse number six. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, listen, we had to cover this last week. We'll cover it again. I don't know what enters into your mind when you think about circumcision, but whatever that is, it's probably right. That's what circumcision is. But more than that, it's what it, it, it's what it meant. It is the in, intent, especially whenever an adult man was circumcised. It was the intent to the intent to obey the entirety of the law. It was equivalent to like signing on uh, signing on a dotted line. And so I'll, I'll bear some of my heart. Like uh, right now, I have a pickup truck envy, and I have pickup truck desire. And I've had this for a couple of years and it, it flares up from time to time. And I understand that a, a new pickup truck wouldn't necessarily uh, make me more masculine or more manly. But uh, some of you that have pickup trucks, uh, it certainly doesn't hurt you any, right? 
guys in the room with pickup trucks. And so I, I see you with your fancy pickup trucks and I would really, really, I uh, too would I, would, I would love one. And here's what I could do is I could go down to the car lot and I could purchase a, I could purchase a, a, a new pickup truck and I could go in the back room and um, after they worked me over some and I could, they could take out the contract and I could sign my, my signature. I could put my, my signature on a line and I could purchase a pickup truck and I could finance it for the next um, 72 months, right? Because you can do that. Like some of you know this and that's not freedom, but nevertheless, some of you know that for the next six years I could, I could do it. So I could have the blessing of driving a brand new pickup truck, but then I would also have the burden of for the rest of my life paying $800 a month for said pickup truck. And some of you know what that feels like because you've foolishly done that. And so I could do that. I could sign on the dotted line and what was it that, 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 that enacted me in this covenant, into this contract, into the rest of my life, this obligation of fulfilling this law. It was the fact that I signed on a, on, on a dotted line. And in the same way, uh, circumcision was that. It was a signing on the dotted line. It was a commitment. It was entering into, taking the sign of a old covenant of saying, hey, guess what? I will have a, the burden of fulfilling the, all of the law in order to get the blessing of God and his, and his favor and his righteousness and to all be standing and standing good favor of him. It was an agreement to take part in the blessing of God, but you had the burden of keeping the law. And what Paul says here is that doesn't matter. Your circumcision, you signing on the line or your uncircumcision, you never signing on the line. Neither of those things count for anything. That what he's in effect saying here is religion nor irreligion counts for anything. Not moral living nor immoral living. Neither one of those two win or earn God's favor and approval. Not being a lost member in a not a lost baptized member in a church, nor the alcoholic heathen gets you anywhere with God. Not the Westerner with a solid Judeo-Christian ethic. He is no closer on his own to God than the tribal cannibal. In fact, according to C.S. Lewis, he says that. The Westerner with the Judeo-Christian ethic may be further away and certainly harder to reach with the gospel. Paul's saying that neither our good performance makes us any more lovable by God, neither does our bad performance really make us any more lost and any more hopeless, that we all together as humanity, as humans, as a fallen creation, that we all stand equally lost and unequally be saved by our own. And what Paul says in this one little verse is, but there is a new way, a better way, a third way. Not circumcision nor uncircumcision, not through religion nor irreligion, but the third way is found in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, but only faith working through love. That last week we talked about the, free, we talked about the theme being freedom. And we talked about Paul saying, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery we said a yoke is, uh, most of you probably know this, but a yoke is a, 
is a, is a farm implement. It's an implement that an animal uh, puts around his neck and then uh, some sort of implement is attached behind him. So I guess it's not the implement, but the implement, a plow or a cart or a whatever is attached behind it. And then there's, a, you know, reins that go up and ch or chains even that are chained to it. And then this animal is pulling it. What Paul's saying is there are two yokes. There's a yoke where you are carrying the burden of your sin the yoke is the yoke of irreligion. It's you buckling under the weight of trying to carry the load of your sin before God. It's guilt-driven, empty, burdensome living. It's you trying and trying to lessen your load by morality and good works. But in the end, it leaves you with the question of how good is good enough? Have I done enough in order to, to somehow uh, lessen the burden, to lessen the load? How many works must we do? And then Paul says that there's a second yoke. It's the same burden, but a new yoke. The burden is still the burden of your sin, but it's no longer through you trying to live a good life, but it's now you trying to lessen the burden through, through religious performance. And that's what the Judaizers are coming in. The Judaizers are bringing a legalistic, law-driven religion with the same guilt, and the same empty promises, and the same burdensome living, the same slavery, the same question, how good is good enough? When have I performed enough? When have I done enough? And what Paul was saying is there's a third yoke, a new way, the light and easy yoke of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you for my yoke is, is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That in Christ and only through Christ can the burden of the guilt of our sin and the burden of appeasing God be lifted from our shoulders. Now listen, some of you may say, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Three yokes? I thought this was, scripture said, it's uh, for freedom that Christ has set us free. Like what about a, a third yoke? Like it seems like Christianity would be yokeless living. It seems like, Following Jesus would be no yoke, but now you're free. And the reason why is because we don't understand freedom. That in fact, last week we introduced uh, these freedom facts and we covered freedom fact number one and we're covering them each week. And today I wanna give you freedom fact two and possibly freedom fact number three. Freedom fact number two is this. You will never live free until you know what freedom is. You'll never live truly free until you know what freedom is. I say to my kids often, like whenever, I, you know, especially when we talk about dating, I'm like, well, what are you looking for? What kind of mate, what are, what are you looking for? And they'll say, well, I don't know. And I'll say, well, how will you know when you find it if you don't know what you're looking for? And that's what a lot of us, we live our lives. We're looking for freedom, but we don't know what freedom is. And so the question is, how will you know when you found it if you don't know what you're looking for? And so what is freedom? What, if, what is freedom? Like if you were to ask, um, if you were to ask our culture and ask people that don't know Jesus, and maybe this is what you think freedom is. If you were to ask them, what is freedom? Then the culture would probably answer like this, would say, freedom is this, that I am free when I am free from in, in, impediments and obstructions to keep me from doing what I want to do. That's freedom. It's whenever I'm totally free from any kind of obstruction, anything that would stop me from doing 
whatever it is that I want to do. And maybe you would have the caveat as long as it doesn't harm someone else. That's what freedom is. And so for you, if we had a helium balloon here today, you would say the helium balloon is free when it's free from any kind of impediments or obstructions that would keep it down. And we let go, we set the helium balloon free and the helium balloon would rise to the top. And I was actually gonna do that, but then we'd have to shoot it to get it down. And then we might make a hole in the roof. And so we left it. So we didn't, you just gotta imagine this helium balloon or a rock, a huge rock. If I was holding up a rock and I would say, when is the rock free? And you'd say, well, the rock is free when you let go of it. And the rock is now free to fall because that's what heavy things do. They, they fall, they give into gravity. And now the rock has been set free because it's, it's fallen down. And as for me as a human, that I am free only when I am free to do whatever I want to do, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. And let me push against that for a second, because as preachers, that's what we get to do. If that's your idea of freedom, that you're free to do whatever you want to do, to go wherever you want to go, to live however you want to live, if that's your idea of freedom, then love must be slavery for you. Because love restricts us and constrains us and and causes us to, to do things even things that sometimes we don't want to do. Guys in the room, you probably understand this. There was a time when you were free, as our world thinks about free. After work, you went where you wanted to go, right? If you wanted to go out with the boys to BW3s and enjoy a beverage like a Coke and eat some wings, you did that and watched the game. If you want to go hunting all day on a Saturday, you just got up and you went hunting all day on a Saturday. You didn't come home till the hoot owls were hollering, right? Didn't give a thought about it. Whatever you wanted to do, you went and did it. You got up on a Monday and you didn't feel like going to work. You didn't go to work. You were free to do all of those things. But for some of us, then something happened. A girl came into your life and it wasn't even real love. I mean, it was just like, you know, romantic feelings And the guys after work said, hey, buddy, you want to go whatever? And you said, hold on, let me check in first. Not me. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Didn't you? And that's what we would say. That's what mature people do. That's, That's mature love. That's mature affection to do that. Been married now 24 four years and I still on, hey, guys want to get together tonight on a Sunday night? Let me check first and just check in, right? Just check in, not asking permission. I'm just checking in and vice versa. That's a mature relationship. That's what being mature and unselfish thing to do. And listen, the truth is nobody's forcing me to do that. But my love for this person dictates that. If freedom is being free to do whatever we want, nothing impeding us, nothing stopping us, then the most enslaved person in this room is the new mom. It's the new mom. For those of you that are new moms, you know this. For those of us and for those of you, not us, but you in the room, you will remember this, that you bring this little 10-pound terrorist into your home that makes non-negotiable demands upon you and your body and your sleep and your shower schedule. 
I think I'm going to take a shower. No, you're not. I'm going to lay here and scream until I fill my diaper and it runs up my back. Like, how is that even possible? I mean, post being a baby, like, when's the last time it ran up your back, right? Into the nape of its neck. And now instead of showering, you're giving this child a bath, right? But you've, in that moment though, you've never been less free to do whatever you wanted to do. And yet more in love than those moments. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that love makes it easy. I'm not, well, it makes it easier, but I'm not saying that it's easy. But as scripture says, love covers a multitude of sins and your, your love for that little member of ISIS that's now living with you, your love for that child made in the image of God, it, it, it enables you to overlook the fact that you haven't slept in three weeks, right? It enables you to, it doesn't mean it's easier, but it enables you, it enables you to, to overlook those things. But there is sacrifice in love and love enables us to make the sacrifice. Which brings us to freedom, freedom fact number three. Freedom is doing what love dictates. That's what true freedom is. That real freedom is the enablement to do what love dictates, what love asks for, what love demands, and to do it with a sense of delight and not just duty. Freedom is doing what love dictates. That because you and I have been made in the image of our creator, you and I have been created to love and we've been created for relationships. That you and I in Genesis chapter one, and we'll get there in January, but in Genesis chapter one, you and I, that we, we are created by our God in his image and God in his image, God exists in a trinity, in, a, in relational harmony, one with another, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so when God creates us in his image, he creates us with capacity for relationships, a relationship with him and a relationship with one another. In fact, in the creation account, you've got God saying time and time again, God creates and, and, and God says with this refrain that it is, and it's, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And then all of a sudden God creates and, and he makes man. And then all of a sudden he says, it is not good. And what was not good? Again, God, God makes an aardvark, it's good, but a lonely man is not good. God makes a, a cat and says it's good. And yet looks at man in a state of loneliness all alone and says, and that is not good. And so God creates for him a suitable helper a woman and relationships are, are, are then born in that. And here's the same way, because God has eternally existed in community. He's made us to exist in, in community and in a relational harmony. But Genesis 1 doesn't stop at Genesis 1. It folds over to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And in that we have Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's sin. And when sin came in, everything gets wrecked. And when sin happens, the, 
The, the rest of the Bible and even our story today is unfolding because of what happened there in that garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator, walked out of relationship with God, everything gets all jacked up. Everything gets changed and you and I are included in this and you and I, we get bent. Our wills and our desires, they, they get bent towards self like this piece of rebar. What once was straight because of the fall is bent and no, no more will anyone be born without this bent, this bent towards self. Now listen, there are um, at least two ways that we could bend this rebar back. That that's the goal. Okay, you're bent and you're bent towards self, but what God is doing in Christ is he is bending what was bent towards self straight again so that it can have relationship with God and relationship with others. But let's talk about how we bend things straight. See, there's two ways. Like one way is I could use force and exertion. And because this is like, you know, less than a half inch, I could force it and bend it back. But there's been damage done here. Internally, there's been damage done. The fibers inside of this rebar, they've been, they've been stretched, they've been broken. And even though I could bend this thing straight again, here's what's true about it is, it will always be weak here. And I may exert, could happen, I may exert too much pressure and I may bend it the opposite way and then bend it back and then bend it again and bend it and then, and then what's gonna happen? It's gonna break. So I could bring it back into shape by forcing it from the outside, to shape it, to bend it. But then there's a second way that we can bend this straight. We could plunge it into a furnace. We can heat it, heat it from the inside coming out. We could get it so hot in the inside that it, it, it glows from the inside and the fire the fire heats the fibers and the, and the fibers are then, are, are then um, they're, so, they're so hot. They're moving so quickly. They're so energized that a blacksmith or someone can. And then even in that moment can plunge it into water and temper it and strengthen it where it's now even stronger than it was before. And that, sec that first one is religion. It is trying to conform us to something from the outside, external power and external force. But the second is what the work of the gospel. It's the effect of the gospel. It's what Paul means when he says, it is faith working through love. It is what he literally means. That it is our faith in the work of Jesus Christ that is being energized, being heated up, being energized by by love it is when we are plunged into the fire of God's love for us, the love of God as it has been displayed in the gospel that it melts us and then we're reshaped by the master blacksmith away from self and we're bent into shape by new loves, giving birth to new desires. And this is true freedom. See, some of you, you read this and you think this is what's freedom. You gotta watch 
Paul's tricky here. The gospel's tricky because look here, it's not lawless living because even in the text that we are, are, are focused in on, or I, let me just focus, focus you in further for it. Verse number 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In one word. You shall love your, your, your neighbor as yourself. It's not lawless living. There's still a law that has to be taken place. It's still God, by the power of Jesus, he's shaping you. He's bending you into shape away from self and into relationship with himself and into relationship with others. But the way that he's doing it is by giving birth to new desires and new loves so that you can have freedom to do what love dictates. Let me take the last few minutes to unpack the rest of the text of scripture because I, I, got, I got to get through it. All right, look, I don't mean I don't have to, but that's what I do. Like, that's my job, not to just fill you with illustrations and tell you about kids pooping their diapers, but it's to unpack God's word for you. So take out your Bibles if you have them with me and look at verse number seven. We did six, now let's do seven. Paul says, you were running so well. So again, he's talking to this church in Galatia. You were running so well. You were running down the race and who has hindered you from obeying the truth? Who stopped you? Who's, who's hindered you? Who stopped you from obeying the truth of the gospel? Verse number eight, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Think this isn't from God. This isn't from the spirit. This isn't from Jesus. This is outside of that. Verse number nine, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what he's calling for there is a, is a purity in the gospel message. It's, it's a call to gospel clarity. He's saying you can't just, you mix in just a, a little bit. Like think about for those of you in the room that may bake, think about the flour to leaven, that's yeast, flour to yeast ratio that you put in. You got all this flour and you just sprinkle in a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, and it becomes something else out of that. You take what, what would have been pizza dough or what would have been spaghetti dough, and it's the same ingredients, just the addition of leaven, and now it's become something else. And he's saying the same thing. Just takes a little bit of false religion sprinkled into the gospel that totally pollutes the gospel and turns it into something else. And that's what's happened. These folks have infiltrated in and they're telling you now what you must do instead of what Christ has done for you. And it's enslaving you and it's not leading you to freedom. It's not leading you to love. It's leading you to obey because you have a cruel taskmaster, not a father who loves you. It's leading you to be more obedient slaves rather than being loving children. That's two different things, right? An obedient slave is a thing and a loving child is a, another thing. And the gospel is a declaration that even though you and I were unlovable, he's loved us and included us and brought us in and adopted us. It's National Adoption Day, maybe even today. And all of us together, we celebrate adoption. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we've been adopted by him and through him and we've been included into his family. So you no longer need to be an obedient slave. You're now an adopted son and child. You're no longer an orphan, but you're included into his family. What a beautiful message. That's the message of the gospel. And he says, don't let that get changed. Don't let that get polluted. Don't let that become something else. Preach that and only that and watch people change. That's what Paul said. I mean, it's not in there, but that's what he's saying. Watch them behold the majesty and glory and beauty of Christ and watch them change rather than telling them, hey, this is what you got to do to change. Move on. Next, he says, Paul says, verse number I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. 
And the one who is troubling you, he will bear the penalty, whoever he is. He's talking about the false teacher here. There's a penalty that's involved. He's basically saying, hey, put them out. And I know uh, there's a mix here of this text is all about love. We just need to be loving and inclusive and all of that. And Paul's saying, yes, but then there are false teachers that we kick out. There's wolves that come in among the sheep and they try to promulgate a false gospel and the loving response of an elder in that place is to kick them out. It's to ask them to leave. It's to excommunicate them. And it's to fix what they have tried to break through preaching of the gospel. And we do those kinds of things here. Saying, I don't even know who this cat is, but I believe he's gonna bear a penalty, whoever he is. And then he says, verse 11, but if I brothers still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? I'm not preaching circumcision. Evidently this guy's saying, hey, this is what Paul said. Paul used to preach circumcision. I'm not preaching circumcision anymore. I'm not preaching that you can be made right through something you outwardly need to do. In fact, I'm still being persecuted. If I was preaching that, the Jews wouldn't be beating me up, throwing me in prison, stoning me, all of those things. The Jews wouldn't be there. I'd be one of them. I'm preaching something other than what the Judaizers are preaching is what Paul is saying. And he says, look, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of God. And that's what Paul says. Let's hone in for just a second on the offense of the cross. Paul says, if then I'm preaching something else, then the offense of the cross has been removed. What is the offense of the cross? How does the cross offend us? It offends us here. It calls every one of us sinners. That's what the cross does. And you're not just some run-of-the-mill oops, I did it again, slip up sinner. You, friend, and I, we have sinned against a holy, just God in such an egregious manner that the only, the absolute only way that you and I could be made right is for the father to send his son whom he loved immensely to come and to be tortured to death, to pay the penalty for your, for your sin. The cross of Christ outs us, every one of us, saying that your morality is meaningless. Your religious performance is meaningless. You trying to be a good, I, I appreciate you being trying to be a good person. Don't, don't hear me wrong. I don't want you to go out here and try to be as evil and bad as you can be. I appreciate that. But it gets you nowhere with God. It gets you absolutely nowhere with God. In fact, it's even in this text of scripture. Later on, uh, and we'll get there in fullness, but Paul lists off, he gives us a list. It's not a, it's not a, a, a complete list, but he lifts off the, the works of the flesh. Take your attention. And in fact, it'll be up on the screen that the, the, there's a list of the works of the flesh that's, uh, that's found. Um, I don't know, where is that? 19, verses 19, 20, and 21 is the, is the list of uh, the works of the flesh. And these, these take on categories. Paul puts them in categories. There's sexual sin, 
sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. There's false religion, idolatry, and sorcery. And then there are relational sins. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then he comes back around to, it's actually substance abuse is what the last one is, drunkenness and orgies. It's not what most of you may think about it as an orgy. It's a drunken party. It's more the picture of it. It's substance abuse. Sexual sin, false religion, relational sins, substance abuse. There are sins that would be common in, in a pagan lifestyle. And then there are sins that are common within a religious lifestyle. There are sins that are common that we would all point at and go, that is sinful and that is horrible and that is wrong, and it is. And then there are sins that most of us would say, eh, it's not that bad. And God's saying, no, it's just as wrong. It's just as evil. Your fit of anger and your jealousy and your rivalry is just as evil and offensive to God as the mom who's passed out in the front seat of her car with a needle hanging out of her arm and her kids are in the back seat. There are sins that you would find outside of the church and there are sins, let's be honest, that many of you find inside the church. That many of you have been to churches where rivalry and envy and strife and jealousy fill the church. And that's how the gospel offends us. Because the gospel says that the church member needs the gospel just as much as the pagan. That oftentimes we would ask the question, we ask the question, does the punishment fit the crime? That's a question we ask. You think about a crime, you say, hey, did the, did the punishment, did it, did it actually, did the, did, the, did the punishment fit the crime? We ask that, especially in areas of injustice where we see, we go like, no, I think they should have got more. Maybe you think that they should have got less. Well, listen, the crime of your jealousy is the punishment of God's holy son on a cross. Your jealousy is just as inducing of the wrath of God as a drunken orgy. And the punishment is the punishment of Christ. And the only cure was for Jesus to come and to die in your place. And that is just what he did. That Christ has died for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He's died for the moral conservative and he's died for the immoral liberal. He's died for both because both needed it. He's died for the religious and he's died for the irreligious because both needed saving. And then we come to this question. What could possibly, what could possibly motivate the thrice holy God, the creator of all things, what could possibly motivate him to do that? What could the possible motivation be to send his son to this earth knowing what his son would endure for sinners like us? What could possibly be the motivation of the son to willingly go and to go all the way to the cross? What could possibly be the motivation? It's here. It's 
what every heart longs for and what every heart desires. It's what every head of state desires and is looking for. It's what the longing of every human heart. It's here. You ready? You ready? Love. And a love that's unlike any of our loves. Because it's almost impossible of us because we've been bent out of shape. It's almost impossible for us to love with any pure motive. In almost every relationship, we get some sort of blessing, but what blessing does God get from you and from me? Kids that would worship him, he got angels. No, he's, then why? Love and grace. First John 4, 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that you and I, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation. That's bearing the wrath of our sins, the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the extent of God's love? His love takes Jesus to the cross and he lays down his life for his enemies in order to make them his sons and his daughters, not because we are lovable but to make us lovable. And when you and I, when we plunge our hearts into that furnace, that when you and I, when we are, when we are heated up and when we are energized, when we know that and we are secure and we are confident in that raging furnace of his love, then we are melted and he bends us back into shape and he strengthens us and we're able to freely do what Paul writes about in verses 13 through 15. And we'll close with this. What shall we do with this freedom? See, that's the question they ask. See, when you preach the gospel, people say, you can't say that because then people are free to do whatever they want to do. Yes, you can. And yes, we are. We do whatever we're free, whatever love dictates. And this new love comes to us and it dictates what we are to do for verse number 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, either in sinful living or in selfish living. Don't do that. He's saying, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but what shall we do with it? Through love, serve one another. You've been freed by love to love. That's what you've been freed for. You've been freed by this gracious, loving act of God. And for what? So that you may love. So that you may truly image the Father. So you may truly image the Son in the way that you love and the way that you serve one another. So you would think it would be some kind of, some kind of horizontal relationship there, wouldn't you? No, I'm sorry, some sort of vertical relationship there. Like, okay, now you've been freed and what shall you do with that? Worship me. Like you would expect him to say that. No, here's what I want you to do. Love me back. But he doesn't, he leaves the vertical out and shoots straight for the horizontal because in that he's saying, this is the way that you worship me and this is the way that you love me. When you love others and you serve others sacrificially, you're loving me in that. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And he gives a couple of words, but in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, self-love is never it's never, it's never described in the church. There's never a prescription for self-love. It's always assumed. 
Some folks say, well, you gotta love yourself before you can love others. No, no, that's not true. In fact, the Bible nowhere tells you to love yourself. It's assuming you love yourself and you do. No, I don't like me. I, I, I get that. I don't like me a lot of the times, but I, nobody, nobody thinks about Andy Lawrence any more than Andy Lawrence. Maybe my grandmother, but she's with Jesus now. But nobody thinks about, at least that's what I like to think. Nobody thinks about Andy Lawrence, what Andy Lawrence is gonna go, what Andy Lawrence is gonna, nobody serves Andy Lawrence like Andy Lawrence serves myself. And that's what he's saying there. Love others the way that you love you. Think about others. Try to think about others as much as you think about yourself. Serve others with the same gusto that you want to be served and that you serve yourself. He's saying, this is what you've been set free to do. You've been set free to do this. Now go and do this. Love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And then a word of warning. But if you divide, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. We, uh, we moved into a farm whenever I was a teenager. We moved on to a farm here in Franklin County. It's when we moved to Franklin County and we had all this land. And uh, my brother, uh, he's, uh, he's an animal lover, uh, unlike me, um, but he's an animal lover. And so my brother got this dog. It was a German shepherd dog. Um, I can't even remember the dog's name. Great dog, neat dog. Brought this dog out onto the farm. This dog was totally free and this dog would run and this dog would chase things. And this dog started chasing the neighbor's um, geese. And then one day the dog got a hold of one of the geese and it um, lovingly sent that poor little goose to heaven. And the dog got a, a taste for goose blood in its mouth. And all the Alpo in the world would never satisfy its thirst for goose blood. And we try to chain it up and try to hold it. But man, as soon as that dog would bust free and guess where he'd go, chase the neighbor's geese. And so the neighbor sent that dog to be with Jesus too. And what Paul's saying here is there's a word of warning that instead of serving one another, what we could do is we could nip at each other through those relational issues, jealousy and rivalry and not wanting to serve out of love, but we can, I don't know why they're making us do this. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why, I, I, I don't know that person, what they're doing. We could bite each other. And if we're not careful, we'll get a taste for one another's blood instead of Christ's blood. And a church that turns like that, a body, again, he's running to churches. A church that turns like that, <clears throat> it will consume itself, is what he's saying. And the remedy of that is what? The remedy of that is being filled with Christ's blood, not each other's blood. In church, we have an opportunity to remember that. An opportunity to remember the great love with which Christ has loved us and may it motivate us to love others may motivate us to love others. Let's pray. In this moment, may we, may we be crystal clear on your great love for us, your demonstration of that love, 
The demonstration of that love is found here in you, Jesus, allowing your body to be broken and your blood to be spilled, your blood to be poured out, your blood to be shed, to win the unlovable and your enemies and to make them your children and to adopt them in. And may we, as the Point Community Church, may we with fresh affection and fresh fire, may we remember this. And may it transform us to be, to love you and to love others. To love others as we love you. For your fame, I pray that and ask that, Lord. Amen.